This audio production is brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com, David Wolf's premium longevity member site. Okay, welcome everyone. This is your host, Lucian Gothier, and I am here with Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave has been with us for over a year now. He's been speaking at our Longevity Now conferences. He is the fish oil guy, the omega-3 guy, also carnosine, CoQ10, and he's been delivering some amazing presentations for us. The latest Longevity Now conference that we had in October, Dr. Dave gave an amazing presentation on cellular health and the importance of having a very healthy cell membrane. So thank you, Dr. Dave, for joining us today. It's great to have you on our show. Thanks, Lucian. It's great to be back and always uh, wonderful to be able to communicate with, uh, with the folks out there through you guys. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Okay. And Dr. Dave, I'd like to start this interview by asking you what your findings were from testing our participants at the last Longevity Now conference. I know that you had done some omega-3 tests, and let's talk about the results of those tests. Sure. We did a significant number of them, uh, actually at both conferences, the one in April and the one in September. Globally, the results were not very good in terms of, of health. In other words, the whole reason for measuring all this is what is the impact on human health? Um, there's a very clear-cut association with omega-3 levels and health of many different areas, cardiovascular health, brain health, bone health, endocrine health, uh, mental health, and, of course, uh, one of my other areas of speciality, if you will, uh, telomere health, the, the biologic time clock health. So uh, omega-3s are extremely global in their impact on the human body. The results were not very good. We, we represent them in percentages, and a, a good percentage, a healthy percentage, would be around 60 to 70% omega-3s as measured by this test. Um, the average value for the first conference was 23%. The average value for the second conference was 25%. The range of values, in other words, who was lowest and highest, in the first conference, the lowest we saw was 18%, which in my opinion is dangerous. The highest that we saw there was 28%, which is, again, abysmal, <laughs> not good at all. Now, in the recent conference, uh, we had a little bit more of a broader-based audience. By far, most of the people who took the test were either vegetarian or vegan, but there were some outliers, and interestingly enough, when I talked to those people, um, and let me just qualify that for you, outliers in terms of having a significantly higher value. In this case, we had four or five people who had values in the 40% range. Now, again, 60% to 70% is ideal, so 40% is not really that great, but it was significantly higher than the bulk of people and there weren't enough of them to really change this average value. The average value was still really low because uh, of the 60 or 70 people we tested there at the second conference, uh, most of them were, were in the teens to 20s. So, you know, we just didn't have enough people to skew the data, which is good because I can tell you they were outliers. Those people were either supplementing with fish oil or uh, aggressively, aggressively taking things like flax and algal-based uh, products. So overall, the results were not, not uh, too stellar. And Dr. Day, let me ask you this question. Have you ever found it to be true where you test maybe a group of people who are vegan or vegetarian, and then you test a group of people who are on, say, the standard American diet? Did the people on the standard American diet ever beat people in terms of test results, in terms of omega-3, um, just just through just through their, their daily diet? Does it? lend itself to better omega-3 levels than, say, someone who's consciously leaving that out? No. <laughs> I wish I could say it did, um, but it doesn't. The truth of the matter is 
the vegan vegetarians that we've tested, and you know, when you pool the data, it's, it's probably in the hundreds now, and certainly uh, the people that, that we've tested um, who are not vegan vegetarian, many times the values are almost identical. And I had a very interesting conversation with the guy who invented the finger stick test we use, the ideal omega test. His name is Tom Gohuli. He's a doctor and researcher over in Edinburgh in the U.K., and Tom and I were talking about this, and he said this value of, you know, 20, 23, 25% is typical for the Western diet, and in his uh, experience as well, also typical of vegan vegetarian. So the bottom line is uh, most people are not getting enough, and uh, it's not necessarily through deliberate omission. Most people, I mean, your group, Lucian, the, the vegan vegetarian crowd that, that I have a great fortune of, of speaking to are highly educated, highly motivated and um they're they're doing what they do for specific reasons um many of it is health motivated obviously and some of it is also uh spiritual and uh, protection of animal uh rights etc so there's there's a lot of uh choice making going on there the average person doesn't make those choices they just eat what comes down the pike or what what they buy in the grocery store or what the news media tells them is healthy and they're in the same boat so there's a huge gap in uh, omega-3 ratios. We have way too much of the omega-6 inflammatory fats and way too little of the omega-3 fats. And it, it's global. It, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, live in one specific population of people. Uh, it's, I, now, I would love to test a bunch of paleos and see where they're at because I, I would probably bet you they're not a whole lot better, if, if at all, because of the consumption of, uh, of um, high uh, amounts of nuts. A lot of those people live on a lot of nuts. They also eat free-range meat, which should help, and they have access to salmon. But um, this is a sneaky, sneaky problem. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the effects of lacking omega-3 on a cellular level in, in terms of the cell membrane, also in terms of our brain health. What's the result that accumulates over time when we are chronically deficient in omega-3 for, say, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that the omega-3 values are usually um, inversely proportional to omega-6s. So if you have low omega-3 values, you automatically have high omega-6s, at least in a Western society. I should qualify that by saying it's possible to be low in both if you live in an area, of, uh, area like sub-Saharan Africa where there's famine. But for most of the people listening to this uh, conversation and this call, um, it's not going to be that way. One is going to be up and one is going to be down. And the problem with that is that if you have low omega-3s, you have high omega-6s. If you have high omega-6s, then you have an inflammatory condition in your body. And you have that inflammatory condition um, originating from the cells, individual cells of your body, and um, echoing out, if you will, like, like a, a pebble in a pond, throughout the rest of your body. It's a global problem in the body as well. And it's going to affect all kinds of health areas, but specifically the brain. The brain absolutely needs high levels of omega-3 fats, specifically the one fat called DHA to function. The problem that most people get into is they don't understand that you can't just take DHA and all that DHA gets into the brain. It doesn't work that way. You need EPA, which is the other essential omega-3 fat found in the fish and marine oil-based products, and that the brain uses to convert and make more DHA. So if you don't have enough EPA, you're not going to have an adequate DHA level either. 
If you don't have enough of both EPA and DHA, again, the essential marine fatty acids, your brain can't function properly. The membranes will not function properly. Um, the, the synapses in the brain won't function properly. You won't make enough neurotransmitters. And what you see on a clinical uh, basis is you see things like Alzheimer's dementia, vascular dementia, uh, personality disorders, schizoaffective disorders, things like borderline personality, ADHD, autism associated with low omega-3 fatty acid levels, and just garden variety depression and certainly manic depression. So all of these uh, focus issues, these personality issues, depressive issues, you'll have sleep issues, all these originate in the brain and are all associated with low omega-3 fatty acid levels. So in terms of brain health, it's absolutely essential. And Dr. Dave, in terms of the health of the cell membrane, you said something that at the conference which really struck a chord, which was, you know, all the information that passes through the cell has to go through that cell membrane, so it needs to have a certain kind of consistency, if you will, um, to allow that information to pass forward and backwards throughout the cell. Can you talk about the cell membrane in omega-3? Sure. Um, the, the analogy I used at the conference um, was delivered. I chose vitamin D because most people have been bombarded with the importance of vitamin D, and clearly it is a very, very important uh, nutrient that we have to have. But in order for vitamin D to function, it has to get from outside the cell to get inside the cell. And in order to do that, it has to have uh, attachment to a receptor, and it has to be pulled in through that cell wall to get inside the cell. The ability of that vitamin and receptor complex to get inside the cell is directly dependent on how functional that cell membrane is. And the, the functionality of that cell membrane is directly dependent on the omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid ratio in that cell membrane. If it's not fluid enough, the receptor may not be there. It may be pointed the wrong direction. It may be distorted and not be able to grab that vitamin D. And all the vitamin D in the world won't overcome that problem. You, you have to have an effective fluid uh, healthy cell membrane to get that into the cell. And then I went on to explain what else happens, and that is that once vitamin D is in the cell, it has to get in uh, to the nucleus, which is where your genetic material is, and influence which genes get read. In order to do that, it has to pass through the nuclear membrane. And again, the nuclear membrane is much like the cell membrane, uh, very much dependent on omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid ratios. Once that gets in there, then you have to make some products from the genes that have to come out, and thus you have to cross the nuclear membrane again, and you got to get out into the cell and have to have the protein machinery that makes the uh, end products of that vitamin D's signaling uh, work properly, and that then has to uh, change the, the behavior of that cell. The other thing that's important, Lucian, is not just uh, you know what gets in and what gets out, which, by the way, Everything I said about vitamin D applies to every vitamin, every nutrient, and everything you eat. So I use vitamin D as an analogy, but it, it's again, it's global. Anything you take, anything you eat that you want to get into that cell, and by the way, most of the external stimuli that that cell has to respond to, both good and bad, depends on that cell membrane health. The other thing that the omega-3 uh, fatty acids and the omega-6s, but again, we have too much omega-6s, so we're going to focus on the omega-3 lack. When we don't have enough of those, we don't have the ability to control inflammation inside that cell and outside that cell because these fatty acids don't just, um, they're not just like building blocks of a building. They're also biochemical messengers, 
and when needed, they're called upon, slightly changed and released outside the cell, and when they're released outside the cell, they cause an anti-inflammatory response if they're from the omega-3s. When they're released inside the cell, uh, they're called resolvins, and what those things do is they soak up some of the uh, free radicals that come from our uh, uh, machinery that, that we have in our cells called the mitochondria, and by soaking up those free radicals, they actually improve the behavior of the mitochondria and reduce the damaging and aging effects um, that are just a necessary byproduct of us breathing oxygen. So I mean, when I say global, I mean everything, um, and, and that's just a, a, the tip of the iceberg. But all cell membranes, mitochondrial membranes, nuclear membranes depend on this ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids. Okay, fantastic. And is there any relationship between what you explained in terms of the health of the cellular membrane and cardiovascular health in general? And, you know, this is something that's now coming out more and more, the, you know, the demonization of, of omega-3, or not demonization, sorry, the, the lack of awareness related to omega-3 and cardiovascular health seems to now be kind of turning a corner where everyone seems to be on board in that omega-3 is a great cardiovascular protector. Can you talk a little bit about the cellular membrane and how it relates to cardiovascular health in terms of having a protective quality? I sure can, but let me just comment about what you said first, which was the, the global acceptance now uh, of omega-3s as a cardiovascular preventative. That information has been around since the 90s, and, of course, the, the key factor in making it acceptable was the fact that we now have two drug companies making a fish oil product to prevent um, specific problems in the body. So once the drug companies got on board, it all became okay. I told the story at the conference of how I was pretty much ostracized from the medical community um, initially when I started preaching the gospel of omega-3s, uh, just like uh, the same thing happened with the hormones. Now you see uh, commercials for these omega-3 products and the testosterone-based products, for example. It's all okay now that the drug companies do it, Lucian. So I always found that kind of interesting. Um, I think when you talk about cardiovascular health, there, there's a huge body of data and, uh, on omega-3s. Again, it's been around for over a decade. Um, there was a fellow by the name of Bill Lance who back in 2003 uh, showed a, a linear relationship, a straight-line relationship between how much of these omega-3 fatty acids, marine-based fatty acids, and he, of course, was looking at people who consumed fish or took fish oil. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of alternatives uh, back in, in, in that the time that the data was actually accumulated. So he was looking at this, and he was able to draw a straight line between how much omega-3 was in, in the red blood cells and in the bloodstream and heart disease. And what this did was it spawned the medical community to take a look at this and say, okay, it really isn't all about cholesterol. It's all about inflammation. And so when you have too much omega-6 fatty acids in your membranes, it affects the um, behavior of the cells globally. Again, I've used that word globally many times today, and what that means is it's all over the place. It's not just in the heart. But what happens is, the tendency of the body to be, quote-unquote, chronically inflamed uh, is brought about in many cases by high levels of omega-6 fatty acids. When that happens, you start getting um, inflammatory reactions and scarring reactions inside the vasculature that provides blood flow to the heart. And when that happens, you start getting clogged arteries and you start getting heart disease. So that's a, a very key um, part of it. And in terms of what happens to the heart cells themselves, 
the cardiomyocytes, we call them, that's a little different because most of the heart disease that we see percentage-wise is really vascular disease. It's not really truly heart disease. It's vascular disease that affects the heart. Um, when you talk about congestive heart failure, that's a different animal, but I can show you studies that have shown that high omega-3 um, levels are very, very important in the treatment of congestive heart failure as well. So it seems to affect both the contractile performance of the heart and the blood supply of the heart. And that, that originates very much from the cell membrane biology that we just talked about. Okay, fantastic. So now let's talk a little bit about your particular omega-3 product. This is a fish oil product, so obviously this is not a vegan product, but for those people who are deciding to make a choice to take omega-3 supplementation via fish oil, Let's talk about some of the things that go into your product. One of the big concerns that people have nowadays, obviously, is because the oceans are very contaminated with heavy metals and other things. How do you ensure that your product is pure, clean? Uh, how did you go about deciding on how you're going to make this product? Give us a little bit of background in, in terms of how you came up with this particular omega-3 fish oil product. Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that likes to test things, and I like to see proof. So we are very scrupulous in our testing. We do publish our test results, and I've shown those vis-a-vis uh, -vis some other products out there um, at your conferences. So the first thing we do is we start with as clean a source as we can. So oceans everywhere are polluted, but there are certain areas that are not quite as polluted as others. So if you start there, you have a little bit less work to do. So you start with the cleanest source that you can possibly find. For the uh, fish oil uh, product, we generally use smaller fish, which is another thing, uh, anchovies, mackerel, herring, uh, not not so much the bigger fish anymore. We got away from using salmon because we really found that um, a big fish like that that's been around for a long time does have the possibility of accumulating a lot of pollutants. And then once we have our oil from the fish, um, we start there and we clean it up with something called molecular distillation. And the actual subdivision of molecular distillation we use is um, supercritical liquid chromatography. It's the most accurate way of identifying what's in that oil, and it's the most accurate way of taking out what you don't want. So we that's what we do. Uh, we remove all the lead, the mercury, the arsenic, um, the polyvinyl chlorides, the polybiphenols, the furans, the dioxins that we possibly can. And uh, the process, again, supercritical liquid chromatography is a very clean process. It's a low heat process, so we can demonstrate that we have a, a much better oxidation value for our product than is even required. Uh, we're, we're actually four times less oxidized than what you would need to meet the highest standards on the planet. So we're extremely uh, careful about any kind of rancidity or oxidation as well. And, again, that's a byproduct of the process. Now, another byproduct of the process is that the conformation of the oil is changed. You remove um, the, the, fatty acid, the, the fat chain or the glycerol that's um, holding those fats together, and you turn it into what's called an ethyl ester. In the process of doing that, you concentrate the fish oil, so you make it a lot more concentrated than you can get from a quote-unquote natural triglyceride products. Natural triglyceride product is all the rage right now. Everybody's talking about it, saying it's much, much better for you because it's natural. Well, the problem is it's also dirty, just like the oceans that it comes from, and it's also not concentrated. If I were trying to prove that I had a product that was better than fish oil, I would use a natural triglyceride product because of the low concentration and the high likelihood of toxicity. So we use an ethyl ester, and uh, we take a lot of um, quote-unquote heat for that. It doesn't sit well with people who say, well, that's not natural. Actually, it is natural. 
Um, a lot of people talk about the different formats of fatty acids, phospholipids, triglycerides, etc. All three of those things exist naturally in the human body. A triglyceride form, the ethyl ester form is intermediate form, and then the phospholipid form. And the body easily converts in, in, into one or the other uh, depending on what it needs. So that argument that one form is, is uh, better than the other because of enzymes is kind of nonsensical. The body can handle this very, very well. But the final reason that we chose the ethyl ester form is because that's where all the scientific data was. Those big studies that I mentioned back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, a decade ago, specifically the one we call GS, uh, excuse me, GISSIGC, those studies all used ethyl ester. And believe it or not, for once, I agree with the pharmaceutical industry. And they chose, uh, when they made their pharmaceutical uh, or their prescription-grade product, um, they chose the ethyl ester format for that very reason, that there's a huge body of scientific data based on that specific form. Uh, it's much more bioavailable in terms of uh, uh, how it gets absorbed into the body because it's more concentrated. The absorption curves are nice and slow. They're not sudden and abrupt like some of the other forms. And, again, the biggest thing is we're using the same form that they used when they saw all those benefits in the people they treated in those big studies. Okay, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that information with us, Dr. Dave. We really look forward to uh, hearing from you again, and I'm sure we're going to be doing a lot more together in the future. Thanks, Lucian. It's always a pleasure.